Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi with Sky Gun, on Treaty 6 territory. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Each episode, we take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history. Then we find out the answers together. And before we do anything else, this story starts with Dustin Bajer and I washing our hands. Dustin is our curious Edmontonian for this story. He and I are at the University of Alberta to visit the Bruce Peel Special Collections. And as our guide for today explains, when you visit the Bruce Peel, you wash your hands before you touch anything. We can bring you out. If you want to come and look at an illuminated manuscript, you know, from the days before movable type, or a cuneiform clay tablet, things like that, we can bring you all kinds of things. You have clay tablet writing? Just, just got some, yes, in fact. So you can look at a thing that's, that's from 2000 BCE. All you have to do is leave your ID at the desk and your bag and wash those hands and, uh, and, and we're good. So that's really actually- Dustin and I have come down to this quiet, kind of grandiose reading room in the basement of the Rutherford Library to start investigating a question that seems almost too obvious to ask. How did Edmonton become known as a prairie city? So you're at the Bruce Peel Special Collections. This is, we have the special collections here. Uh, we're at the University of Alberta. And my name is Jeff Papineau, and I am a library technician here. I've been, been here for 18 years. And so the um, kind of the thing that I do here is I'm, I'm sort of the chief pile manager that every, everything that does come into this place passes through my hands at one time or another. So um, it was nice to get the call from, from you because I sort of knew where all the right piles were going to be to pull some things out. And um, I don't know if, if this is the right time to tell you, but I, I think that we might, you, you know, you, this may not answer your question because in fact, I think I'm gonna prove otherwise that Edmonton, Edmonton isn't a, a prairie city. Before we get into what Jeff has brought that makes him dubious about whether we're a prairie city at all, I should explain that this is not the first time that Dustin has encountered some skepticism about how we should think about this landscape. He actually asked this because he also feels like it's a bad fit. Dustin asked this question on a website called Taproot Edmonton. I'm collaborating with them on a series of episodes, starting with this one, because just like Let's Find Out, Taproot members ask questions in a little story garden online, and if a question is interesting or if it's gotten a lot of attention from other members, Taproot gets somebody like me to investigate. Before we got to the library, I got Dustin to tell me why he cares about whether Prairie is a good fit for describing Edmonton. I am, what am I? I, I tinker in all kinds of ecologically inspired projects, education, um, have an interest in history, and I think for the relevance of this question, um, I, I really... Uh, want to know more about this place that I call my home. Uh, I asked why do people refer to Edmonton as a prairie city? And I guess I'm wondering, are we? Are we a river city? Are we a prairie city? Are we a, uh, a forest city, Aspen Parkland, boreal forest? I think it comes down to something um, called sh- a shifting baseline. And so what I mean by that is you grow up in a space and you kind of become aware of your surroundings and inevitably those surroundings change and while you have perspective um, and you can remember how it used to be, the next generation that comes up sort of learns their their baseline is different than yours. And so I think um, 
part of the reason why I'm asking the question is, is I want to maybe dig a little bit back in time to try to identify what the ecosystem, what the ecology was here in and around Edmonton. I do see Edmonton described as prairie all the time. All around town, there are businesses named Prairie Noodle House or Wild Prairie Soaps. But like a shoreline, we have some of those species that you're going to find further south, some of the species you're going to find further further north. And uh, and this is a really interesting place where they can kind of co-mingle. I think for the purposes of this question, where it gets a little bit tricky is... Um, I don't think prairie is a super well-defined term, um, but I'd be willing to bet that if you Google prairie and you go to Google Images, you're going to see mostly grassland. Um, and I think I think Aspen Parkland, we would have had patches of that, but um, it would have, I suspect, been a lot more forested than it is today. Okay, I've got a question for you. Sure. Is this question meaningful in 2018 right. when so much of Alberta's landscape has been converted from like prairie what it, what that might have meant 150 years ago um, with like a complex ecosystem of like bison predators right. completely different species now to like wheat and canola I think I think the reason why I'm interested in this question is I'm I'm interested in cities and um, I'm interested in Edmonton. I, there's something called uh, a biophilic city, and so it's a term coined by uh, Tim Beatley uh, in a book called Biophilic Cities. Um, and it's this idea of, you know, can you create a city that loves nature? That's literally what that term means. So bio being life and, and, and philia meaning to, to love. And so can you create a city that loves nature and that partners with nature. I think that we have, you know, it's it's very easy for us, especially like the further removed you are from ecology to kind of define humans as being separate from the natural world. Um, but nature is here and nature happens to love cities. Um, and I think if you can embrace nature and cities, you could partner with it in mutually beneficial ways. And so he has a lot of really great examples of, uh, you know, not just green roofs that filter water, uh, clean the air, provide habitat, um, but things like, can you uh, use urban agriculture as a way of, you know, mitigating flood risks or mitigating drought risks? Um, I guess when we're talking about working with nature, especially in the context of Edmonton, it's useful to, to have a bit of a reference point of, you know, what kind of nature is here, what kind of nature was here. If you're planting a naturescape in your front yard, what does that look like? Is that, is that grasslands? Is that boreal forest? Is that... Are, are you kind of a little bit saying Edmonton could be this excellent city that works with nature but one of the barriers is that we're under the mass delusion that we're a prairie city and that's blocking us from being a city that works with our actual ecosystem. Yeah, I feel I feel like I'm saying maybe like a toned down version of that. Like I, I don't I don't know if it's if it's like blocking us, but um I don't know. I just I find it's 
maybe it's a little bit hard to like how do we embrace how do we embrace ecology and nature in and around Edmonton if we're kind of like debating what is here or what was here if that isn't an accurate reflection of the land here how did we start calling this place prairie so what we're hoping is that since the Bruce Peel collection includes a ton of posters and pamphlets and journals and magazines from the prairies going back hundreds of years they might be able to help us pinpoint how early people started calling Edmonton a prairie city. Maybe even how it was marketed. I had a hunch that some of the propaganda enticing settlers out from Europe might be a good place to start. But the first thing that Jeff pulls out is actually a 140-year-old editorial complaining that Edmonton is not a prairie city and we shouldn't be governed like one. Just slide it out. Wow, oh my god. This is the closest I've ever been to a physical conference. This is why you wash your hands. Right, yeah. <laughs> Right here, this is uh, the Edmonton Bulletin. We're looking at like a plastic covered, this is a, yeah, small mylar newspaper? Covered, mylar covered uh, version of is this. The, Frank Oliver was the editor of this, right? That's right, the, fa- the founder and proprietor of it. Um, so this is from December 20th, 1880. Several of the existing laws, while suiting the other portions of the territory, are great injustice to this section of it. Take, for instance, the enactment about prairie fires. We have no prairie here, yet a man cannot fire any of his brush heaps after the 1st of May, for if he does, it is liable to be arraigned for violating the above statute. Uh, let, let us see if we cannot remedy the state of affairs by sending a good, lively man to Battleford to speak for us. And, of course, Battleford was the capital of, of the, the Northwest. Let every man in this district see that his name appears in the census sheets. So that was important why that you were to, to register to vote. And so um, I see this again and again in, in the newspapers to just say that uh, particularly on the issue of the prairie fires, because prairie fires were a constant threat, that Edmonton itself was not actually on the prairies. And so some, from some of these very earliest days, you know, people were aware of the fact um, that, that, it was, that it was not. And then Jeff pulls out these other envelopes with old magazines and pamphlets inside. The kind of thing I was looking for, advertising land to people who might want to settle out west. And these seem to set Edmonton apart from the prairie too. I'm actually thrilled he found these because I don't think I've ever seen them before. I just assumed they would exist. So this one is... Um... Western Canada, Manitoba, and the Northwest Territories, 1899. Information as to the resources and climates of these countries for intending farmers, ranchers, and etc. 1899, uh, Ottawa printed under the authority of Honorable Clifford Sifton, Minister of the Interior. Part of what I wanted to do was kind of see at what point do, do we start to even hear prairie uh, coming into the, to the name. So um, it, it talks about kind of the same thing. Um, the advantages with which northern and southern portions of the district offer to the intending settler are so diverse in its character that it is customary to speak of them separately as northern Alberta and southern Alberta. So this is northern Alberta, and um, I'll sort of set you in on this. this oh, the town, the town of Edmonton, which is about the center of the district, is at latitude 53 degrees 29 minutes north and long, longitude 113 degrees 49 minutes west. It is therefore as far south as Dublin in Ireland, Liverpool and York in England, Hamburg in Germany, further south than any part of Scotland, Denmark, Norway and Sweden, and, and 455 miles further south of St. Petersburg, the capital of Russia. 
There you go, some geography. What they don't mention is that we're nowhere near the ocean, so our climate is not <laughs> moderated by... <laughs> it's a little bit different, yeah. Um, the scenery is of varied beauty. No stern, rugged, and, aw and awful mountains, nor long, dead uh, monotony of flat, treeless prairie strain the vision here. That's a strange sentence to say, but... They're saying like it's it gives you like something interesting to look at because yeah. it's not just boring prairie. It's not just flat and there's no real ugly rocky mountains in the way either. Jeff pulled out some posters for us to see as well. This is the, the big poster that would have been in these land agents' offices. Own your own home in Canada and apply for a ready-made farm uh, to the nearest Canadian Pacific agent. Hmm. And so... Um, this is part, you know, and so they show some cows and they have a uh, farmhouse and a barn and a lot of hay and a lot of sheep. And it was basically, yes, the, you know, for the right person, and I think that's what this one says here, it's mine. Canada, the right land for the right man. Canadian National Railways, the right way. Uh, and then I don't know if I can read all that upside down, but uh, essentially very similar kind of thing. It has a train. It has the pastoral uh, sort of farm the, and the hay and everything else. And so it is the idea, this is the prairies. And so come to the prairies and there is um, opportunity. And so there were, were programs from the government that would allow for you to get very uh, inexpensive land. Uh, and you know, my, my theory about how some of these publications work is that the further south you go, the, uh, which is where the railway originally went through, more of that land is owned by the uh, railway and it's being parceled out to people. So the publication of these things to attract uh, settlers is uh, a little bit self-serving in that it seems to favor this idea of the prairies. Edmonton gets very small billing. Yeah, it just makes some observations, even about like the visuals of these like marketing materials. Sure. Um, none of them are in winter. Correct. There's no snow <laughs> in any of them. Um, there's also no indigenous people there's no First Nations people, there's no Métis people in any of these pictures. It's All like, of them are, what, 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 was, what did the poster say? All of them are British of... So this they're, is... They're all British farmers of moderate capital. This, far, this poster says, ready-made farms in Western Canada. Get your home in Canada from the Canadian Pacific. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a white woman on a farm, um, on a kind of like grassland-type landscape um, with a tree behind it, and then... The poster beside it, this is the one I like that I think is like starkest. It, it literally says, it's mine. And then there's a white man holding the picture right. of a farmstead with a, yeah. a Canadian uh, National Railways train going by. And then it says, Canada, the right land for the right man. And I actually had to like actively stop myself from saying the, the white land for the white man, because that's like, so it's clear that that's the message. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's. Probably more of well, I don't, it was probably obvious in whenever this poster was published, but it's uh, certainly stands out in 2018. Yeah. Also, I think it's interesting that um, Canadian National Railways had a physical office in London, Liverpool, and even Glasgow. Glasgow. Yep. 75 Union Street. So I'm looking at these homestead regulations in the 1924 edition of Canada West. This is the Governor of Canada published guide. That's right, yeah. Um, and so this seems familiar to me. I have um, on both sides of my family, um, you know, my great-grandparents immigrated to Canada, into Alberta, 
in particular, um, and took advantage of this this Homestead Act. And so for for ten dollars, they got a piece of land, but the requirement was that they had to essentially um, uh, crop it, right? If they weren't farming it, then then they we could take take it back. But I think partially, you know, this is something I'm interested in because. You know, if we go back to the bulletin and, you know, the, the author of that article is mentioning there is no prairie here in Edmonton um, and you were to drive around the outskirts of Edmonton now, I think you would see something that a lot of people would identify as prairie. I think these homestead regulations are part of the answer as to how you go from, from what was mentioned in the bulletin to what you see today. Right. So this homestead regulation says an entry fee of ten dollars uh, is charged, and the settler must erect a habitable house upon the homestead, uh, homestead and reside therein for at least six months in each of three years. Uh, he must do some cultivation in each of the three years, and at the end of the period, must have at least thirty acres of the homestead broken, of which twenty acres must be cropped. So there's there's definitely an expectation that you're clearing the land and you're putting it to, you know, productive agricultural use. Jeff did find records in their collection that tie Edmonton to the Word Prairie, but they're from the 80s and onward. A graphic design show in 1986, guides from the Edmonton Folk Music Festival. I started looking uh, at the folk festival programs and I thought, well, that would be an interesting thing. So you see over time the change in the, in the Word Prairie. Um, sort of infiltrating more and more into the Folk Fest programs because more and more people are being described as you know, having a prairie sound. So somebody like Cor Blund represents this, you know, urban prairie sound. Whereas if you go back to the ones in 1980, they, it, nothing like that comes up at all in the, in the keyword search of, of those documents. So I think that, there, that the, the idea of um, us being a prairie city has a lot to do with just that, that same old thing in terms of it's easier to put a label on us, uh, to lump us in with the, with the rest of us. And it is this, uh, this social component of we're, we're the same kind of hardworking, creative, rugged individual types that uh, was very much, I think, a construction come up with uh, by Ralph Klein. Uh, to sell Alberta, and particularly in uh, in its opposition to Quebec at that time, in terms of asserting our own sort of Western independence, um, and I think that's about that time where you start to actually see it more in, in the printed record. So, if print records didn't provide a lot of evidence of Edmontonians calling themselves Prairie people until recently, what about the land itself? Is there somewhere to go in the Edmonton area that's like? time capsule of what this land was like before settlers started arriving. That, and a whole new twist on how to describe this question, are coming up. But first, Let's Find Out is brought to you in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. 
Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. Let's find out as a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. We're a collective of podcasts all around the province, and one you might enjoy is Modern Manhood, made by Herman Vijegas. He digs into what masculinity and manhood mean to a huge range of interviewees. I really enjoyed his interview with Brandon Schatz. Brandon runs a comic book shop in Edmonton that's encountered a lot of pushback about the way that they've tried to welcome queer and female readers. In his latest pair of episodes, Herman interviewed a filmmaker who made a movie about Palestinian kids who do parkour. You should check it out. Modernmanhood.org. All right, back to our story. So we're looking for a time capsule, a picture of what this land was like before it was all turned into wheat and canola. And conveniently for us, there's an organization in town whose whole job is to take care of just such plots of land. And we happen to know the guy who works there. Uh, my name is Corey DeGroote. Yeah, I work for the Edmonton Area Land Trust. Um, I'm the Conservation and Outreach Coordinator. Um, yeah, we're Edmonton's only um, nature land conservancy. So we focus on Edmonton and the area surrounding Edmonton. Um, and we have 10 conservation lands that you should all check out. <laughs> um, and it's our 10th anniversary this year as well. So that's pretty cool. This is kind of cool that we get to have you on the podcast as a, like an information source this time. <laughs> Corey came over to give us an introduction to a plot of land just west of Edmonton city limits so that we could sort of know what we were looking at when we drove out. So when we, we do actually get a lot of people interested and they approach us wanting us to conserve the land they have, but we're a small organization, we're not for profit, so we have to kind of pick and choose what we can conserve. And so they need, there needs to be some sort of environmental significance. Um, so we'll do a lot of research into that. Um, so they're all different, like the coats, the one that you guys are visiting today is really cool. Um, there were dinosaur footprints and bones found there like years ago. Um, and it's also connected to the Willow Creek, which feeds the North Saskatchewan River. So a really important connectivity corridor um, for wildlife. Um, what point in that landscape's lifespan are you picking to like, uh, like what's the snapshot in time that you're that you're trying to keep that area similar to? Is it similar to like the time that you received it? Is it similar to like what that piece of land would have been like 100 years ago, 500 years ago? Like, how do you decide? Um, I guess when we acquire the land, like there's a lot of discussion with the previous landowner about how they would like it or like how it was and how they would like to like it to be managed. Um, but usually when we receive the land, we try to conserve how it is at that time. Um, like there isn't a lot of say restoration, like huge restoration. Like if there's invasive weeds, those get removed. Um, like old buildings, like those kind of things we remove, but it's not like we try to, um, reverse or like change how the land is to like how it was. Usually it's just preserving, conserving what, how it is. And that's usually encouraging wildlife to come, um, making some trails like foot access only, obviously for people to enjoy. Um, removing invasive weeds, but um, we don't do a lot of, yeah, we're not trying to switch it back to a diff, like to, to how it was like 40 years before, 50 years before. We talk with Corey about the possible flaws in assuming that this area is typical of the land around Edmonton. Like if it's all along Willow Creek, it would have been harder for farmers to clear than the surrounding land. And also that we're assuming that chopping down trees would be the most significant change to this landscape. But m- maybe the, in fact, the opposite is true. Anyway, the way we want to learn about this land is to go there. We hop in the car and drive out southwest of the city. 
We turn onto a little gravel road and see a forested spot right across from a farm. We walk into the aspens with Dustin leading the way, looking for berries. Cherry. Pin cherry. Yeah. Edible? Yep. So you wanna, they're sour, they're tart. I'll try one. Looks like there's more up top. This might be Saskatoon in here. Dustin and I start sort of slide walking down a steep, muddy hill. Are you also accumulating like two inches of mud on the bottom yeah, of your shoes? Oh my god. <laughs> he points out sarsaparilla plants down by the ground and tells me not to touch the beaked hazelnuts we find growing by the trail. But mostly, we see aspen poplars. So here's our, here's our aspen parkland, right? I mean, all these, these taller white trees, uh, white, you know, kind of white bark trees, they're not birch. Um, and then you can see the leaves trembling in the wind. And so there's a good chance that a lot of these trees will be the same plant. And so multiple colonies, or just one colony that, that's sending out lots, but you know, they're probably- Clones. Clones, they're all clones. Or they're individual trees. It's, you know, you don't know until you check out the roots or do a DNA test, but I think that's a little bit beyond my capabilities. I didn't pack equipment for that what? today, sadly. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, one of the things that I I learned years ago, I don't know how true it is, but the there's a white powder on these aspen. Dustin just rubbed his hand on a poplar. Yeah, and or it, aspen. Sorry. Aspen, yeah. Uh, aspen poplar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess it makes decent sunscreen. Hmm. You've got like a white caking all over your hand. Yeah. yeah. We could test it. You could rub like half your face in it this morning. Right, yeah. I Do some patterns. Yeah. I might as well rub it on my face now though since I have it on my hands. <laughs> this does, this though like, this reminds me of my childhood though. Like, and, and maybe that's why I'm invested in this, in this, um, in this question. So we talked about like a baseline, like a shifting baseline. And now granted, I did grow up an hour and a half northwest of Edmonton. Um, so I'm closer to the boreal forest than Edmonton would be. But this is sort of the landscape that I identify with. And so... When people say Edmonton is a prairie city, I guess in my mind that represents like a shift in my baseline, right? Like my baseline is this because this is where I ran around and built forts as a kid. Um, and so maybe that's why it bothers me so much when people say prairie city. Um, but I lived an hour and a half, I grew up an hour and a half north. So, so you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but, you know, I, I also still have that hunch that the city's landscape has changed tremendously over the last few hundred years. Um, do you want to talk about, okay, while we're in the car driving over, yeah. you were talking about, um, snapshots in time and how arbitrary it's, uh, seem increasingly seeming a little bit arbitrary to pick a snapshot to define whether Edmonton is a prairie city or not. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so I have a, like a hard, I fundamentally have a, like, it's a question that I want to get to the bottom of, but I also struggle with a little bit because um, nature is 
always changing. So the ecology of this place has been changing since it's been here. Um, and so it's ultimately arbitrary to take any moment of t in time, take a picture of it and say, this is what should be here and this is what shouldn't be here based on that. Um, if anything, trying to control nature is trying to like keep it from adapting. So there's a bit of a paradox here where I'm simultaneously trying to discover what this place was while I'm recognizing that the ecology of this place is always changing. And so it puts me in a bit of a, it's a bit of an awkward position to try to discover, you know, the nature of this place while acknowledging that that nature is fluid. So yeah, it's just, I don't, and that's why I, I, I stumble with it, with the question a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's still something valuable in having that snapshot. Um, because it, I mean, I don't know, it, like it, it informs how that change is occurring and, or how rapid that change is occurring. Um, and I don't think we have a clear snapshot of what Edmonton was like a hundred years ago or 150 years ago. Um, and so I don't know if you don't know what it was like then and we, then it's easy to assume that the way it is now has always been the case. Um, and I think there's value in recognizing that, that change, um, and that we've perhaps had an influence that change. Cause if we influence that change in the past, then maybe it also informs like how we might want to influence the change going forward. So one of the things that like, I remember as a kid, I grew up not far from a lake, but there'd always be like uh, freshwater mussels would turn up on shore. And so I tried to Google Alberta and freshwater mussels. And there's like, there's like little or nothing uh, written about it. And so there is a book, an obscure book. It's like uh, Aquatic Invertebrates of Alberta. It was like a gajillion dollars online. I found a friend who was able to, to like, who's an ecologist who like photocopied the section on mussels for me, but can't eat them but they are like filter feeders so you need like super clean creeks so new goal uh we get our act together we create beautiful pristine edmonton ecology where our ravines are good enough to drink from and we create some oyster or some mussel habitat and we uh we have our own edmonton mussel festival i love it yeah there's some it. intermediate steps that we need to do to get there but <laughs> I think it's <laughs> we're worthwhile gold. Feeling like we have a good sense of the place, we decide to head back. And then, improbably... Oh, hey! Broken pieces of shell right on the path. There you go. There's our freshwater mussel. That's so... I... I how unlikely is that? That one's a whole... The whole animal, right? It's almost spooky. We were just walking along this creek, talking about mussels, and there they are on the trail. So, to recap, we tried looking through print materials to see how far back Edmonton was called a prairie city. Couldn't find evidence going very far back. We hiked through a ravine that we hoped would give us a sense of what this landscape looked like before settlement, and it didn't really look like grassland to us either. 
This is a bit unexpected for me, but Dustin raised this question in the first place because he understood this land as an Aspen Parkland, a shoreline between forest and prairie. Our research was backing that up. And then I stopped in at the offices of the Treaty 6 Confederacy on the west side of Edmonton, and things got a lot more complicated. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Ron Lehman. I'm a Cree person from Treaty Number 6 territory. I come from the Beaver Lake Cree Nation, uh, northeast of here, about two and a half hours. And I work here for the Confederacy of Treaty 6 First Nations. I was introduced to Ron by a mutual friend, Miranda Jimmy. We'd tackled the print and ecological record from settler perspectives, but Indigenous people have been here for thousands of years, and their worldviews on land often sit side by side with settler worldviews in solitudes that barely touch. So I thought, let's make sure to have a peek on the other side. And Ron, as a holder of traditional knowledge of this organization that does advocacy and advisory work around our local treaty, he agreed to meet with me. So I bring out my little plastic baggie of tobacco to offer protocol, and tell Ron what I'm hoping to learn about. From a Cree perspective, is this area, the Edmonton area, is it considered prairie or something analogous to that? Uh, yes, uh, from my understanding and my work with the elders uh, for many years now, uh, this always has been prairie uh, this in the Edmonton area. Uh, because of the buffalo herds that roamed uh, this area prior to the non-indigenous peoples coming here. And if you know anything about buffalo or bison, and in Cree we call them uh, mustus, if you know anything about it, uh, you know that the, huge, uh, the, the herds were huge. I am trying gracefully to hide my surprise at this point. This is so different from what we learned so far. And Ron continues. Our elders uh, would tell us that uh, if a buffalo herd came in front of you, you might as well just camp there because you're going to be there for a day or two. That's how huge the herds were. And because of that, uh, they, there was no vegetation. It was prairie because of their movement. They were the ones that determined, you know, uh, uh, an area, uh, well, let's say on the south side here, uh, when they moved through there, through that territory on their migration route, or just moving to uh, find a new place to forage, uh, nothing grows after they pass through. And that's the reason why. And then later on, uh, when they became exterminated, of course, uh, you know, uh, vegetation popped up here and there, trees and and everything, and uh, and there was nothing to control that anymore, other than uh, later on uh, the activities of the farmers. But uh, in history, from what I hear from the elders, uh, it was prairie because of the bison. Yeah, that relationship between plants and animals is so interesting. It is very interesting. Is there um, a similar word in Cree to describe a, a grassland landscape like this? Pasqual. 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 Pasqual, yeah, with a P. Pasqual. So that, that's why you see uh, different places like uh, Pasqua. But 
if you study the Cree language, there's no Q's or U's in the Cree language. It's Basquau. Uh, it's uh, A. Uh, so Basquau is uh, uh, the term that that's used to, to describe a wide open prairie. So uh, in that's one word. Another word is Maskuteu. Uh, and and that word means uh, uh, it's barren. There's nothing growing there. Mm. Yeah. Is there a place that you can think of that that would match that description now? I um, like what? Um, is there a place that um, yeah, listeners might know? More in southern Alberta now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, down towards um, Brooks, down that area, Hannah. Is that what in English we would call Badlands today? No, Badlands are a little bit further uh, east from there. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So Pasquale would be this landscape. Yeah. And then. And Pasquale is uh, not totally without trees, mm. because along the uh, the river valleys and uh, the ravines, of course. Uh, uh, there was always uh, some uh, vegetation, you know. Uh, uh, there, there are a couple things I'm wondering if you could like share your thoughts on that we encountered as we went through those other places to try to learn about this. Mm -hmm. um, we looked through documentation from newspapers from uh, Edmonton in like the late 1800s, mm -hmm. and one of the things that settlers at the time complained about is that the um, Northwest Territories um, at the time, which this region was part of at the time, um, had laws against uh, setting fires. Um, and they said that those laws shouldn't apply to this area because it's not prairie. Um, where did that misconception come from, do you think? I honestly couldn't tell you. I. I haven't read the document that you're you're talking about, but uh, uh, in the late 1800s, you you talk about, and uh, that was after the the huge uh, herds were decimated. So, if you think about it, from uh, around 1870s, mid 70s, uh, to late 1800s, that's already a couple of decades, almost three. So there would have been time for some trees to grow, and maybe that's why they had that misconception. But prior to that, uh, like I mentioned to you, that's that was the case here. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't mean to... <laughs> I, I know it's like a big task to like, can you please like argue with these people who were having conversation 120 years ago? Um, and I guess the other thing um, is like, uh, we visited this site um, managed by the Edmonton Area Land Trust uh, near Devon um, called the Coates Conservation Area. It's along Willow Creek. And the area looks very aspen-y. It's, it's heavily dominated by trees. There are some conifers there. We actually found some um, freshwater mussels there, which was kind of neat. Um, to me, it looked like a very heavily treed area, and they, to them, they said, like as as far as they know about the history of the land going back in the past hundred years, um, uh, no one has like actively cut down vegetation or anything. So that bit of land is by a creek. 
do you think the fact that it looks kind of foresty does that reflect like the absence of bison now or does that reflect um an area maybe where bison wouldn't have gone anyway because it was like in a bit of a valley or i don't know how, how do you think we should make sense of that little plot of land no I, I think you hit the nail on the head i think it's for those reasons and uh uh, I would say if you were to uh, uh, look at the vegetation, I'm sure you would not find any old growth, like uh, in the hills surrounding it. Uh, maybe you would in the valley part itself. That's probably the only place you'd find any old growth at all. But everything else would be fairly recent, like within the last hundred or so years, yeah. Hmm. With all this rattling around in my head, I drive down to see Dustin and try to make sense of everything we've learned. He's working at the zoo this afternoon, so we meet in a quiet spot just outside the gates. All right. Hi, Dustin. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Okay. I just rubbed a little bit of poplar sunscreen on myself. Oh, well, there you go. That's perfect. I summarize what Ron told me about Pascual and Musquiteu. So that is a totally different perspective from most of the, the rest of things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, it definitely throws a bit of a wrench into what we saw at the Bruce Peel as well as um, some of the stuff that we heard with the Edmonton Area uh, Land Trust. Um, I guess from here, I think it would be interesting, and we're not going to have enough time to do this, to continue the exploration with uh, sort of that First Nations uh, knowledge as well. Um, Because there is um, quite a few First Nations groups that would have been uh, found in this area as well. Then I remember I have some more research to share. I spoke briefly with Elder Jimmy O'Chis from Foothills Ojibwe First Nation, who we spoke to back in episode 9. He said, from what he understood, this land is not known as prairie. And I got in touch with Laurie Barkwell, a Métis history researcher at the Louis Riel Institute in Winnipeg. He told me that Indigenous people have always considered the Edmonton area to be a prairie landscape, going back to the earliest written records, as well as an oral history. Dustin and I talk about a book by researcher Candace Savage called Prairie and Natural History. She includes Edmonton in her map of prairies in North America. We go back and forth. How to make sense of what we learn. What does this all add up to? We talk about zooming way out in time, tens of thousands of years, to look back to how often Edmonton has been under glaciers and how if we do get a handle on our carbon problem another ice age is forecast for our continent we were in the in the car and um, the, the recorder wasn't running but we were talking about um, I think nows like so so there's this idea of um, that comes from the Long Now Foundation, which is an organization whose whole mandate is to foster long-term thinking. And they, they describe the now as you know, sort of this, this space and time in which we live our lives. And so is your now you know, this morning and this afternoon, or is your now yesterday and tomorrow, or is it last week and, and this week? Um, is it last year and this year? You know, how far in the past and how far in the future you know, is the the sort of space and time that we're living our lives. And, um, you know, we mentioned that ecology is something, too, that's always changing and adapting. And, um, you know, we were, we were, you know, I was kind of commenting on, 
you know, if you look around and you see all of these fields and your now is, um, you know, even your lifetime, it's, yeah, you look around and it's, it's like, this looks like prairie to me. Um, but if you expand your now to say a hundred, 200 years, which I think is the, the, the timeline that we've kind of been looking at, then it gets a little bit, maybe a little bit fuzzier. Um, if you expand it back, you know, a thousand years or 10,000 years in either direction, then, you know, this landscape is, and at least in the last 10,000 years has been kind of a, uh, almost like a bit of an African savanna thing going on with all the large herbivores and the carnivores chasing them around. Maybe this isn't a question of one snappy answer. How did Edmonton become known as Prairie City? Maybe through a millennia-long relationship with bison on the land here, or maybe by settlers being enticed to cut down trees to clear the land for farming. Maybe from a yearning to be part of a rugged, do-it-yourself, isolated archetype of prairie people. You know, whether we define ourselves, or however we define ourselves, going forward, we're definitely, I think, coming up on a bit of a bumpy road, and we do need to learn how to partner with the natural world to create systems, to create cities, to create farms that uh, sort of work for people and for nature, because ultimately we're one and the same. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. This is episode 25, which isn't a lot for shows that publish every week, but for a monthly podcast with a ton of work going on behind the scenes, it feels like a pretty cool accomplishment. I couldn't have done it without all of you listening. So really, I appreciate it. And thank you, by the way, to everyone who filled out the Alberta Podcast Network's listener survey. I haven't made a habit of defining seasons of this show, but it feels like the start of season three. I want to try some new things, including this collaboration with Taproot and some tweaks to the format of the show. Let me know what you think. Drop me a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes on any of the zillion apps out there, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course on letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under Let's Find Out Podcast. Okay, thank you time. Thank you to Dustin Bajer, to Jeff Papineau, Corey DeGroot, and Ron Lehman, to Miranda Jimmy, Jimmy O'Chees, Lori Blackwell, Julia Petrov, Rebecca Ellis, Corey Sanderson, and Celine Garo-Brennan. Thanks to Taproot Edmonton for supporting this podcast. If you want to become a member or sign up for updates like Taproot's Tech Roundup, you can head online to taprootedmonton.ca. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the gloriously lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. All right, that's it for this month. Until next time, keep your questions coming.